Thank you, Matt and Jaron. text of that song represents well a number of texts in Scripture, whether you're in Isaiah 40 or Hebrews chapter 12 or even Isaiah 43, and uh, introduces well the thought that's in our text as we go back to 1 John 5. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn again with me to 1 John 5 as we look at the first five verses this morning. I would guess it's true for many of you, it's very true for me, uh, that I love the story of a good underdog. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're talking about sports or military expeditions or business or life or politics. Uh, really, you can go to any of those uh, arenas, if you will, of life, whether it's individuals, teams, uh, corporations, all different kinds of groups of people and see uh, individuals and groups overcome just incredible odds to succeed. And I started to scroll through examples, whether it was from the sports world or the political world or the military world or the business world, and I'm like, I, I really can't settle in on one to use this morning. You, you find individuals who, because of their age, either they're too young or they're too old or their education, they, they just have no education or because of their lack of experience or their upbringing in poverty or all these different kinds of circumstances, perhaps different health issues, even as is the case for some of our past presidents in history that we now respect and go, look at what they overcame. Look at what was accomplished in that event or in uh, that year or throughout that entire lifetime. You know, certainly we could go to God's Word and see some amazing underdogs who overcome impossible odds as well. I was thinking of simply the Israelites going into the promised land in the conquest where uh, they send out 12 spies and 10 are like, nope, can't be done. And Joshua and Caleb like, let's go. It's like, are you guys crazy? The odds are impossible. And yet you read the book of Joshua and find out, no, God enables you could go follow the life of a young shepherd who is the last of his brothers, least likely to be chosen, and yet David becomes king. But even before David ever becomes king, there's that story, that event in 1 Samuel 17 with this giant, and all the rest of the army's like, nope. And David's like, whoa, who is this guy that he should defy the armies of the living God? Someone needs to take a stand here and against all odds. God works through David and blesses there. You could actually back up just a few chapters. I keep coming back to this story. I guess I need to preach it sometime. Um, 1 Samuel 14 with Jonathan and his armor bearer. And there's Philistines and 30,000 chariots. And the Israelites are like, nope. And Jonathan and his armor bearer are like, well, if they call us to come up, let's go because God's on our side. That sounds crazy. If you're following the church's Bible reading, you just recently read about Hezekiah and the Assyrians and Sennacherib and his army coming. They're vicious, utterly destroying many people. And they come to Israel, and they don't really have to do anything because God, once again, just takes care of the entire army of the Assyrian Empire. We could keep going through Scripture time after time after time. There are these examples of underdogs of overcomers, where against all odds, God just works. What I want us to realize as we come to the text in 1 John chapter 5 this morning is that 
This text tells you that if you know God, God as your Father through Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are an overcomer. No matter how hard life seems, and again, we hit those situations, even if you think about the words of the song that Jaron and Matt sang for us, it doesn't matter if the valleys are growing deeper, the, the mountains seem that much higher, the circumstances are just incredibly harder, life just seems so much darker, the race is just too long, you have no endurance left, temptation seems too strong, 1 John 5 tells you that if you are a child of God, you have victory because of your faith. You can overcome. Even reminded of that truth in a different text as I sat in young adult Sunday school and listened to Matt teach this morning. You go to James chapter 1, verse 12, and we're told that the man who endures temptation is blessed by God. He will receive a crown, a reward for his endurance. And I hope as we work through these first five verses of 1 John 5 this morning, that regardless of where you find yourself in your Christian experience, your Christian life, you will find hope in this text that it is worth continuing to believe. It is worth continuing to love. It is worth continuing to obey because God says that his children will overcome. That his children will overcome. As we come to the text this morning, I would note for you that those themes... As we look at God's children of over, as overcomers, those themes of faith, of love, and obedience show up once again in our text. They're not new. Uh, I, in many ways, I feel like Sunday after Sunday, as we keep working our way through this book, I'm like a broken record as we come back to these themes that John is weaving through the text, even going back to chapter 2 in the end of the book to go, you need to believe. That's how you can have assurance. That's how you can have confidence. But you shouldn't just believe you have to obey. Obedience is an important part as well. And beyond that, as we've looked particularly in 1 John 3 and the end of 1 John 4, you need to love because if you are God's child, you cannot claim to be his child and not love those around you. It's impossible. And so those three themes of faith, love, and obedience show up. Once again, we could say it this way this morning, God's children love, God's children believe, God's children obey, God's children overcome. So we come back to the text in the beginning of verse 1. It's this idea that God's children are overcomers. We'll say it this way. First, they are established in ongoing faith. God's children are established in ongoing faith. We could look at it as this is the foundation or the prerequisite. We are not God's child if we don't believe on Jesus Christ as Savior. Nothing else in the text will apply to you if there hasn't been a time in life where you said, you know what, I am a sinner who disobeys God. I deserve judgment from God. But I believe Jesus is the Son of God who came to be the Savior for my sins. Scriptures tell us he died on the cross for our sins so that he paid for the penalty for my sins and yours. He rose again, overcoming sin in the grave, so that if we believe on him as the Savior, we are rescued. We're saved from our sins. We're given new life. We're, as the text tells us here, a child of God. 
So we're going to look at this first thought that God's children are established in ongoing faith. Look at verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Why is that so important foundationally? Well, if you just jump down to the first phrase of verse 4, he says, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. So if we've never believed on Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the Son of God, then verse 4 does not apply to us. And so perhaps there's a need for someone in this room this morning to just simply say, God, I, I do disobey you. I do live too much for me. I can't save myself, but I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. You can simply tell God that in prayer, believing on Christ, and be rescued from your sin to benefit from this passage. Faith is the entry point to God's family, to become a child of God. But I would also say this, faith is not just the entrance point to God's family. Faith is the evidence of an ongoing true relationship with God as well. It's not like I say, well, you know what? I believed somewhere back there, but you know what? I'm not so sure I believe today. The point of this text is that it's going to continue on in faith. As we look at this idea that God's children are established in ongoing faith, notice with me first, the truth is communicated universally. He starts with that broad word, whosoever. Yes, the text is going to focus on the necessity of faith in Jesus as we have already done, but he starts by saying whosoever. In other words, anyone can find the hope of this passage. We could maybe just for help in processing it, look at it negatively and positively. Negatively, anyone who does not believe cannot find the hope and assurance of this passage. Positively, anyone who does truly believe on Jesus as the Christ does benefit from the hope and assurance of this passage. This truth is communicated very broadly or universally, whosoever. Secondly, the truth is communicated presently, believeth, or we translated it very literally, is believing. Anyone who is believing these truths about Jesus. Yes, salvation happens in a point in time. Conversion happens in a moment where we say, I'm, I'm going to believe, I'm going to turn from my sin and believe on Jesus Christ, and we are saved. But as we've said often, that true faith endures. That true faith persists. It's not perfectly but there is this continued pull to go, you know what, I'm going to keep believing. I am going to believe. And this text is taking, written to believers when they struggle to go, continue to believe because if you're God's child, he overcomes the world. Victory is found in your faith in believing. So don't give up. Don't quit. Endure in your faith. Again, it doesn't matter the difficult circumstances we are facing or the allure of temptation or the pleasure of sin, or the mockery of culture, or perhaps even not just culture, but more personally loved ones, or the criticism of the intellectuals of our day. Go, you know what, regardless of whatever it is that kind of gets you, go keep believing. Persist in your faith. You believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. You continue to believe because you are a child of God. Keep Believing on Jesus. God's children are established through ongoing faith. The truth is communicated universally and presently. Third, the truth is communicated, we could say historically and prophetically, that Jesus is the Christ. 
He points back to a historical individual that they've interacted with. He did the same in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. We won't go back there for sake of time, but it's like we heard this guy. We saw this guy. We interacted with Jesus. He was a man who truly lived. But he takes that and says, whosoever believes that that individual, Jesus, is the Christ. And he points to Old Testament prophecy. The word Christ, again, simply meaning the anointed one the Messiah, whosoever believes that Jesus is the one that God promised as a deliverer, as a rescuer, as the Messiah, is the one who's born into God's family. I think we miss this sometimes because we're so used to Jesus and Christ going together that we don't stop to think, what does it mean to be the Messiah? I would just challenge you, like, go through your Bible as you're reading in the New Testament and just mark those phrases as it is written or according to the prophet, because over and over the New Testament authors are pointing back going, hey, God kept his word, 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 hey, God kept his word. That deliverer he said he was going to send, he sent. I mean, even this morning, again, church's Bible reading, if you're there and you're in 1 Corinthians 2, and he's like, hey, it's written, he's pointing back to the Old Testament, that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, man's heart hasn't even thought of the things that God has promised to them that love him. But God has used his spirit to reveal them to us, and he begins to point out, here's the benefits of the work of Christ. Again, we could simply start to think through some of those prophecies that Jesus is the Christ, to go, God had said this deliverer would be born of a virgin, and Matthew says, absolutely. In the city of Bethlehem, Micah will tell us, and we find out that's where Jesus was born, who would be despised and rejected of men as we continue to read through the Gospels. We think, this is crazy. Jesus, this man, is doing miracles. He's followed by multitudes, and yet he's condemned. He's hailed as king of the Jews on, on a triumphal entry, and one week later, the crowds are saying, crucify him. This doesn't make sense until we realize, no, God's just fulfilling prophecy, Isaiah 53 that he would be despised and rejected of men, but that he would be wounded for our transgressions, that he would bring healing and hope to all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. It's important that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Contrary to what the pluralism or postmodernism of our day would assert, the content of your faith matters. It's not anything goes. John specifically says here, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is the one who benefits from this. He does not say whosoever believeth what they choose to believe in the way that they choose to believe. He is narrowing the focus and the content of faith here. God's children are overcomers, but God's children are defined here as those who believe on Jesus as the Christ. So before we move on, I ask you again, if you have believed on him for salvation, believed on Jesus as your Savior, biblically, that's the need for each person. And then the second question for believers is, are you continuing to believe on him as the Savior in your current circumstances? Have you given up hope? It's like it'll never change. I can't win. Temptation is too big. B 
believing in this circumstance is too hard. The, the, the criticisms, the mockery are just too much. I can't stand for Jesus. This text instructs you to do otherwise. To continue believing on Jesus as your Messiah, as your deliverer, as your ruler, because he is the one who will save you. This truth has been communicated universally, presently, historically, and prophetically, but fourth, this truth is communicated affirmatively, is born of God. If you believed on Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, you are born of God. It's perfect tense verb, has been born and continue to be in the family. Like it does not change because you believed on him. You are his child. There is hope. It echoes John's other writings. I mean, I believe many of you would be familiar with that wonderful verse in John chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, but as many as received him, to, speaking of Jesus, as many as received Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Or in 1 John chapter 2, he speaks of those who at one point did, but then didn't, and we find out they never were says this in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. True faith endures. God's children, wonderful truth in the text, are overcomers. But that is first established foundationally through faith. Secondly, God's children are evidenced by sacrificial love. God's children are evidenced through sacrificial love. We'll try to move quickly through this because we've seen this theme a lot in recent weeks. But notice the end of verse 1. Everyone that loveth him that begat. In other words, everyone that loved those who gave birth to all these children of God, everyone that loves God, loveth also him that is begotten of him. Now, in essence, he's saying the child of God loves all of God's children. The child of God loves his or her siblings. I mean, 1 John 4 spent a lot of time from verse 7 on. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is and that's just one example. You can jot these down if you'd like, but this theme has showed up in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 7 through and 8, which we just quoted, chapter 4, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Like This is a big deal to John, but more importantly, this is a big deal to the Spirit of God writing through John. To say that if we are God's children, it is evidenced by a sacrificial love for all. And you say, okay, why are we adding that word sacrificial? Because again, the idea here at the end of 1 John 5, 1 in love is agape love. That volitional, selfless, sacrificial, complete love for all of God's other children. Notice here in the text that this love, again, isn't based on someone's likability or their personality or your commonality. What is your love for God's children based on? 
we could say it this way, it's based on their paternity. It is based on the fact that God gave them life. God said, they belong in my family. And because God has brought them into his family, you and I don't get a vote. We get to show love to them. To say, because I love God and he's brought you into this family, I am going to love you as he has loved me. You know, there's that old statement that sometimes people say, and we kind of chuckle because we can identify with it to an extent, but people say, to live with saints above in love, that will indeed be glory. But to live below with the saints we know is quite another story. And go, you know, it'll be great when we're in heaven and everybody's glorified and man, we can just worship God together and we're all on the same page. But right now, like, oh, well, actually this text is saying that better not be true. It's telling me to love sacrificially, selflessly, all of you. And it's telling you to do the same for every other person that's a believer in this room as well. This changes how we walk into church. It changes how I view needs that arise. It gives me a desire to serve. It humbles me. To go, I need to love those around me. God's children are overcomers. First, they're established through ongoing faith. Secondly, they're evidenced by sacrificial love. Third, it's exercised through loving obedience. How do we know if we are loving those around us? Or even maybe before that, why, again, do we love those around us? Like, how do we evaluate those things? Am I loving those? Why am I loving those? Well, the Spirit of God wonderfully, I think, gives us the answer in verses 2 and 3 when he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God. Like, here's how we know that we are doing this, why we're doing it, what we're doing along the way. And he points us to two inseparable truths that motivate and enable love for others. First, don't miss this one. First, loving obedience is driven by a heart for God. Loving obedience is driven by a heart for God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Foundational to any of our ability to love other Christians is the question, do we love God? That has to be primary. It's primary in any relation. We can go to like the closest relationships in a home, even in marriage. And if one spouse is pursuing God, loving God, and the other is not, it's going to be hard. Because, you know, two are going, you know what, we want to love God supremely. It's a whole lot easier for them to love each other. It's also true in all of our Christian relationships, not just in home, but we walk into church and it's like, why should I love you? Like, if my answer was, well, it's because I'm a pastor and it's my job, how does that make you feel? Right? We all ought to go, you know why I love you? Because God has loved me, and I love him, and I want to please him, and so I am going to love you. Foundationally, loving obedience happens when we first love God. If you don't love him, you won't love others. It is another reason why it's important for us to be maintaining our heart for him, spending time with him going to his word, talking to him, 
so that our heart is connected to him, right? I mean, again, I don't want to overuse the analogy because it is different, but if, if you think about a marriage, it's like, well, this couple doesn't talk. They don't spend time together. They write letters back and forth, but they never read them. That's odd. God's given us his word. He's put his indwelling spirit within us. He's given us access before his throne to come boldly. And so we would do well to maintain a loving relationship with God and then out of that to turn around and love those around us. And if we zoom back out to where the text is headed, you could think of it by analogy this way. You know, as a parent, for me, it's wonderful when I walk into church and so many of you do such an incredible job loving my family. Like, wow, I, very kind, right? You as a parent like that when people love your children, your grandchildren. It's a blessing to you. God is telling us here, you need to love my family. And you do that as you first love me. This helps us when people aren't easy to love. It helps us when circumstances are overwhelming because It's not between me and that individual to go, no, I can't do it for them right now. It's like, I'm doing it because of what he's done for me. I want to continue to love them. First, loving obedience is driven by our heart for God. Second, loving obedience is attentive to the commands of God. Loving obedience is driven by our heart for God, but loving obedience is attentive to the commands of God. It says, For by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Like, he doesn't give us any wiggle room here. Like, yeah, I love God, but I get angry with people all the time. I love God, but I use my words to absolutely tear people apart instead of building them up. I love God, but I, I, I really just can't tell the truth. I do struggle with lying. I love God, but I really just am not content with what he's given me. I just desire what that person has. It's incompatible. When we love God, we are striving by his grace, according to his word, to obey his commands. When we love God, we obey him. It's that simple. This is, again, such a repeated theme in John's writing. In fact, I find it very instructive for me, I hope instructive for you as well, that Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, the Passover, the night in which he's going to be arrested, right? I mean, his hours before death are very limited. And what he says in between that Last Supper And the time when he's crucified is pretty important. We read those words from John 13 through John 18. And so just bear with me as I give you a couple references in that time frame. First, John 14, verse 15. Jesus says to the disciples in those final hours, If ye love me, keep my commandments. If they didn't get it then, he comes in John 14, verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he is that he it is that loveth me, 
And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So he said it twice. And as often happens, he comes back and says it a third time, both with the positive and the negative, so that there's no escaping. When we come to John 14, verses 23 and 24, the beginning of verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Beginning of verse 24, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. Jesus just said, the person who disregards what I've said doesn't keep my words, doesn't love me. So now he said it four times, and yet we get to John 15, one chapter later, verse 14, ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Jesus points out that love for him and obedience to him are inseparable. And so he's saying, back to 1 John 5, God's children have put their faith in Christ, Jesus as the Christ, they're showing love for others, and the way that we can be really sure that they're doing it is that they're obeying. Because they love God and they keep his commandments. They're inseparable. As we think about this in 1 John 5, end of verse 2, into verse 3, we could say this, this obedience happens diligently. This loving obedience happens diligently. The word keep means to persist in obedience by focused attention. To persist in obedience by focused attention. We are prone to wonder. The songwriter has gotten that right. We are prone to leave the God I love. We would go, yeah, you know what? Yep, that's right. And we get into our week, and all of a sudden, we're back to the same old things. And so it takes this repeated choice on our behalf to go, God, I need your grace. God, I need your word. God, I need your spirit to prompt when I go astray. God, I need forgiveness again. So that because we love him, we are striving to be keeping his commandments. How do we love God? Or how do we love others? Well, we have to love God, and we know that we're loving God if we're keeping his commandments. So just be real practical with me and think for a moment. I don't know what command God, would, through his spirit, would take you to. But think about it this way. God, as we've already said, does give us instruction for our words. So if I'm going to love others because I love God and obey him, I am going to let no corrupt communication proceed out of my mouth. I'm not going to give myself a pass. But instead, I'm going to use my words to that which is edifying, ministering grace to the hearer. We could jump just a few verses later and go, okay, because I love, want to love others and I love God and I'm going to obey him, he's told me I'm to put away anger and wrath and bitterness and clamor and evil speaking. I'm not going to use my words in those ways. Instead, I'm going to be kind. That word, again, kindness, doesn't like passively happen. Well, I didn't get bitter. I didn't get angry. Like, in order to be kind, it's proactive. Tender-hearted. How about that forgiving? Because I want to love others, and I'm loving God, so I'm obeying him. He's told me to forgive, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven me. He tells us what to do. He gives us commands about what we do when we're mistreated. Romans 12. Don't give place to wrath. Don't avenge yourself. 
I love that verse in verse 21. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You go, you know what? There's nothing in me that wants to respond this way right now. But I'm called to love those around me. And I love God, and he's told me to leave vengeance with him because he will repay and to overcome evil with good. So I'm going to treat people with goodness. That is obeying, keeping his commands. What about giving to others? I mean, he tells 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this example of here's what the Macedonians have done. In Corinthians, you need to follow through on what you've said, and you need to give to help those in need. Why do I do that? Well, it's because God has loved me, and I love him, and I'm going to obey him. We could go to command after command where there's no limitation other than the words of Scripture. So how do we know if we're loving others? Well, do you love God? And then are you obeying God? And what command of Scripture is he using? I mean, even last week, Andrew started to walk you through 1 Corinthians 13. We stopped at verse 3. You could pick right up in verse 4. Okay, I'm supposed to love God and obey his commandments, keep his commandments. So love is long-suffering, right? We could go through each characteristic there. We won't forsake the time. I would challenge you to regularly ask in any interpersonal situation with other believers, whether at home or at church, what does love look like here? And if you want to be more specific than that, what commands has he given in his word? Ignorance is not a good answer, which is why it's good for us to be in the Word. Memorizing it, I believe you were challenged Wednesday night, meditating on it, going, let's be in the Word. So that the Word defines, obedience to the Word defines what my love looks like here. I mean, husbands, Ephesians 5 has told you what love looks like in your home. It's given you a very good, challenging, difficult, seemingly impossible example. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And in case we need to know, like, how far does that go? He says, and gave himself for it. It is complete, sacrificial love. We could certainly go to the challenges given to wives. And go, wives, you are to give reverence to your husband. You're like, there's nothing to respect here. I think God has told you what you need to do. To submit. To respect. We could go on and on. But what does love look like here? Well, we might be inclined to think about how hard this is, or as I just mentioned, seemingly impossible. We need to notice the next phrase. This obedience not only happens diligently, this obedience happens willingly. I struggle to come up with the right word here, so I wrote, this obedience happens willingly, easily, joyfully, because his commandments are not grievous. I'm going to love others because I love God, and I'm striving to keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. That word grievous simply means heavy difficult, burdensome. 
It echoes the truth that Jesus gave in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, where he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sadly, I think there's so many times we go through Christian life, it's like, but it is so hard. I can't. Because we're failing to continue to believe that Christ is our Messiah. He's our Savior. He's our rescuer. He's our enabler. He changed our eternity. He can transform our present. His grace is enough. I like the way Herschel Hobbes said it. Christian love does not ask, must I? But may I? It does not count the cost, but weighs the privilege. You know what? I, I would be glad to because I've been so abundantly loved that I want to love those around me. And it doesn't matter what Christ has called me to, it is not grievous, it's not heavy or difficult or burdensome. You know, it's, it was an interesting thought to me as I was preparing to go back to some of the texts in the Old Testament law, probably the most well-known one is Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7, uh, where before going into all the commands of the law, he reminds them, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. Their obedience to all the commands he was given wasn't supposed to be predicated on some kind of self-discipline that just made life miserable. It was to be driven by love. You know, when we've experienced the incredible grace of God and salvation through Jesus as the Christ, and we can't get away from the way that he has loved us, it makes it a whole lot easier to look at those around and say, God, just give me strength, give me help, but let me love these people the way that you have loved me. So that loving isn't a have to. Obedience isn't a have to. It's a want to. It's, it's not a must I, but a may I. So we come to the final thought where we began. God's children are overcomers. First, we've seen they're established through ongoing faith. It's evidenced by sacrificial love. It's exercised through loving obedience. Finally, they should be encouraged. God's children should be encouraged by assured victory. By assured victory. God's children are those who believed on Jesus as the Christ, who love God's other children, who obey God's command. And now finally we read, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Those whom God has given new life to. That's the idea of is born of God. They, they've received new life. It's that John 3 idea of Jesus talking to Nicodemus saying, you must be born again. Here in the text in 1 John 5, I would note for you that is born of God is passive. It's not like we did it, right? God gave you life, and because he gave you life, he's given you hope, and there is an opportunity for victory. And so he describes Christians here as overcomers because they have new life. This word overcomer shows up 28 times in the New Testament. Interesting etymological aside, if you will. It's the Greek word nikao. We get that wonderful brand that's out there everywhere, Nike, if you will, from that word. I don't know if the word picture helps you or not. 
So he's saying God's children are victorious. They're overcomers. The word shows up 28 times in the New Testament. Interestingly, 24 of those 28 times are in John's writings. This is a recurrent theme for John. It shows up in that wonderful hope in John 16, verse 33, where Jesus tells his disciples, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He hasn't even died on the cross and risen again. He's like, don't worry. I have overcome. And John used the word 24 times. Like one of the books where it shows up the most is the book of Revelation, which I love. Like the church, by the time John is writing, both in his epistles and in Revelation, we're near the end of the first century. He's like one of the last writers in the New Testament. Okay? You can imagine believers are beginning to struggle, persecution is occurring. And here's John coming along saying, Look, there is victory. Look, believers are overcomers. And so he comes back to the theme over and over. One of the sections of Scripture that you find this in John's writings a lot in are the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, where he writes to these different churches in Asia Minor and says, hey, stay faithful, make sure you obey, don't leave your first love. If you follow this message, you will overcome. It is also the same word, by the way, that's used in Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors. Same word there. So when we're tempted to despair, or we feel like obedience is just impossible, endurance has been so hard for so long, you go, you know what, I'm going to continue to believe. I'm going to continue to love. I'm going to continue to obey because God has said his children are overcomers. The word shows up here twice in verse 4, once in verse 5. It's repeated over and over. John already has said it. He, he told young men in 1 John 2 verse 13, I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. Later on in verse 14, he tells the young men again, you are strong. The word of God, the word of God abideth in you. You have overcome the wicked one. He said it in 1 John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can fast forward into Revelation 12, verse 11. He speaks of them overcoming even Satan because of the victory that they have through their faith in Christ. Please understand that in light of no matter what your circumstances are or temptation is, you have the power to live differently, obediently, and lovingly. It is worth persisting in faith to see God work, to see him overcome. In fact, he brings the text full circle where we began in verse 1 when you get to verse 5. Who is he that overcometh but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? God's children are overcomers. The foundation point is faith. It's established through ongoing faith. But then it shows up, it's evidenced in this sacrificial love for those around. And that happens because it's exercised by loving obedience, saying, I love God and I'm keeping his commandments. So there is encouragement because of an assured victory. Let's pray. Father, this is wonderful truth in your word that we can bank on rest in, and at times just try to tenaciously cling to as we struggle. 
Lord, I pray that you would take this text and encourage hearts of believers to show greater love to other Christians, to deepen their love for you, to persist or maybe even in some cases just return to obedience to you, that we might see you accomplishing victory in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for this truth that points us to the rescue that we have through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.